Oh, Lord, help me now. Lord, I do not, above all things, Lord, I do not want to stand in this pulpit and give my opinions, Lord, that are fleeting, that are overall invalid, but Lord, I want to stand here and give the solid rock and foundation of the Word of God. I want to communicate it in a way, Lord, that builds up the people of God, that strengthens the people of God, and that calls a sinful world to repentance that they may fall before a loving God. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I need your grace now, O Lord, for such a heavy thing to preach on. So I pray for your grace on me now. I pray for your help as I teach now. I pray that you minister to the hearts and minds of your people now. In your sweet name, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the conversation on racism and race has been mightily revived in America, in our world. And as Christians, as Christians, we are concerned with this because we believe that all people are made imago die, that all people are made in the likeness and the image and the resemblance of God, that he is our father and our creator. And the Bible, the Bible condemns racism. The Bible condemns prejudice. The Bible condemns partiality. Second Chronicles 19.7 says, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality. We as Christians, we must stand against any racism, any prejudice, any partiality that we see. We must stand against it when it's uh, in the form of individual racism, organizational racism, however it may show itself. We must stand against it. We must be light against that darkness. So how do we deal with this? Well, it feels like there's a lot of options, doesn't there? There's a lot of options being presented on, on social media, on news outlets, by the world. Everybody's coming up with new ideas on how to fix this problem. Uh, one of my frustrations is hearing uh, good, reformed even, uh, big church, American church pastors act like this is a new issue. If we were exegeting and expositing the Word of God from the beginning, we should have been preaching on this for a long time. Thank God for this church. Thank God that I have heard it preached from this pulpit. So how do we deal with this? What do we as Christians do? What is our weapons of warfare? Because brothers and sisters, this is a war. Do not be fooled. It is a war. God gives you armor, and he does not give you armor so that you can sit in a lazy boy and watch TV. He gives you armor for a war. 
What does Francis Schaeffer say? He says, Christianity is not merely religious truth. It is total truth. Thus, we go to Scripture. Thus, we go to the foundational documents of Christianity for our answers. So, what does the Bible say about race? First, let's discuss race. What does the Bible say about race, about humanity? Well, first we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we believe what the Bible says? In euthetic counseling, when you are counseling somebody from Scripture, you always begin with that question. Do you believe the Word of God, and are you willing to conform your mind and your heart and your will and your actions to the Word of God? Because we're going to discuss it. So, Christian, do you believe it? Yes, we do. I believe we do. Then do we believe what Genesis chapter 4 tells us, that Adam and Eve are the birth of all humanity? Or is that just a parable to you? Do you believe that? Do we have like parents? What about Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, when Noah uh, gathers together with all of his family and they are spread throughout the world, that they all came from Noah following the flood? Do we believe that? If we believe that, as Paul believed it, Acts 17, 26, he says, and he, meaning God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling places. Well, that's the word of God says. That we all have one father. That we all have one parent. Paul acknowledges further in verses 28 and 29 that every individual is what? God's offspring. Paul's point is not only that we are from Adam as humans, and all humans are from Adam, but also that we are all one genos, one kind, one race. All created imago die, all together in common with one another, ontologically, meaning within our physical nature, Belonging to this overarching race, this overarching kind, this overarching picture of the offspring of Adam and the image and offspring of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 12, it says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call so how does God view, view humanity? Does God look down and say, let me see how many different people I've created, different types of humans, human A, human B, human C? Well, the word of God says there is no distinction. But the Bible does also teach in a unique race. A unique race, that all humans are one race, but there is a unique race that the Bible teaches that Christians in particular are to be considered a unique race, a chosen race, a chosen genos, a holy nation, a holy ethnos. First Peter 2.9 says, but you, brother and sister, who have called on God and repented and been made his, you, brother and sister, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
and into his marvelous light. Ah, there is a difference in humanity, a spiritual difference. This is a spiritual distinction that has physical implications. This is unique among believers only to Jesus. This is true regardless of our skin color. This is true regardless of any external feature that you can fathom. This is true regardless of your culture. This is true regardless of your background. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, if you go and read it, it says that the Bible only separates those who are different as those who are in Christ versus those who are rebellious to Christ. There is only a difference between those who are obedient and those who are disobedient. There is only a difference between those who are righteous and those who are wicked. We have our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we have our mission field. That's it. You want to define humanity? They're my brothers and sisters, my family in Christ, and my mission field. So what are we then? What are we as humans? If we are all one race, if we are all one people, uh, if the world says that we are one thing versus what the Bible says, how do we define ourselves? How do we define our humanity? I like the way that Daryl B. Harrison kind of lists it out. First off, we are number one, we are one humanity. Acts 17, 26 says, and he made from one man. Genetic science affirms this as well. Dr. Jason Lyle states that there is absolutely no biological, scientific basis for the idea of different races. Did you know that biologically, Adam and Eve, they were probably, they were genetically considered middle brown. Did you know that? That from their genetic makeup, at that middle brown genetic level, that from them can come all the variations of color and race that we see in this world right now. All the different shades of brown. Because that's all it is. It's just melanin uh, dispersion in the skin. Middle brown. Sorry, uh, the uh, metrosexual Jesus, as Bodhi Bakum calls him, he didn't exist. The Italian Jesus didn't exist. He, he, looked, more, uh, he looked more like Irish's brother than he does like me. <laughs> but we're one humanity, and genetically, it is even proven. Uh, we are two. We are one depravity. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Somebody asked R.C. Sproul one time, he says, why do bad things happen to good people? And R.C. Sproul said, that only happened once, and he volunteered for it. Our primary distinction as humans, our primary identifier as humans in the word of God is perpetrators against God. We are one remedy. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our remedy. Somebody had to pay for this mess. 
Somebody did. And Jesus did. We are one community. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. We as Christians are to be free from all divisions, disparities, and free from all victimhood. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Lord, forgive those in the church who are creating divisions now. Brothers, sisters, have you made a division in your heart? Have you thought of ourselves as the white church and the others down the street as the black church? Lord, help us. Have we done those things? Help us. There is no divisions in Christ. I want my children... I want my brothers and my sisters to be confident image bearers of God. Not guilty of their skin. Not guilty because they're any color. And not have trying to figure out what are they. What color am I? Because my parents are this race and my other parents are this race. You're a Christian in the image of God. And that's everything. It's not just enough. It's everything. The great artistic tapestry of heaven will be the tones, the shapes, and the beauty and the eyes and the colors of humanity displayed across the great ocean of redeemed men and women of God. Bursting forth with glory for King Jesus. Heaven will extol as we worship Jesus together. And if you can't see the beauty of that, if you can't see the beauty of all of that wonderful, creative diversity in heaven, then brother and sister, repent. So that's what the Bible says about race. That's what it says that we are. What does the world say? Do the passages in Revelation, uh, do they define to us uh, biblical truth of race as is described in our culture? Some people say, well, you know, how do we take the fact that the Bible describes different races, different tribes, different ethnoses, different nations, different kinds. How do we understand that? Well, for example, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God for every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Revelation 
7 verse 9 and 10 11 uses the same language. Every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Well, what, what do those words mean? Well, tribe in Greek is the word phile. It means offshoot. It's like a clan or a kindred, right? Clan or kindred. What about tongue? Uh, well, that's language. You know, you speak Spanish, you speak English. Those are different. What about nation? Ethnos. Typically defining in Scripture, Jewish versus pagan, but it means uh, people, community, a group or a company, and it's derived uh, from the word custom or customs, our culture, the way we behave. Uh, these are descriptive terms. These are descriptive texts. These are not prescriptive. It is not saying that they are to prescribe principles and terminology. It's not saying that this is the way that God sees things, but it is merely describing John, who was writing the book of Revelation, was describing what he saw. And in order to describe and communicate properly what he saw, he had to use terms that we would understand. So just because John wrote it this way through Revelation does not saying that God somehow or another has categorized people in heaven by their tribes or by their nations or by their tongues. God doesn't, hasn't done that. The Bible does, though, recognize that there are in humanity differences in kind. Differences in kind. Barnabas is called a genos of Cyprus. Aquila is called a genos of Pontus. Paul is called a genos of the Jews. And this is not defining it as a truth that that's who they are or derivative somehow of their physical and ontological nature. It's not saying this is their physical makeup, but it is an awareness that humans have categories. Humans tend to categorize things for the sake of our own understanding, for the purpose of distinctions. They do exist. It matters. If I was going to say, tell you, describe to you my sons, it's very easy to tell you which one from the other one, but I'm going to use physical characteristics, right? We do categorize. We do define things in this way. That's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. Diversity is not an essential difference. Not an essence, not essential difference, but a material difference biblically. It's not who we are in essence. The color of my eyes are not my essence. But it is something that expresses the infinite nature of God's beautiful and creative power. It's like the colors of a stained glass. Like the colors of a beautiful stained glass. Its essence is that it is glass. But its vibrance is that which it reflects. Its color. It is not, in essence, blue, but it reflects blue. So why does humanity do this? Where do these categories come from? Where do these divisions and these distinctions come from? Why do we do that? Well, we have a sin nature. We have a sin nature. We pervert the things that are natural and good to God. Thus, unregenerate man in his sinful humanity is always working to undo the righteousness of God. If God has defined that we are one race, then of course man will consciously or subconsciously wrestle with that very thing. Our flesh will work towards disunity, from Charles Darwin to Karl Marx. From all humanity back to the beginnings of the Old Testament, man does it. 
Why does man so inherently create these divides? Why do we do this? What is the flesh? What is the motive behind this? Well, Proverbs chapter 1 portrays sinful man as having two types of relationships. Either you are a co-conspirator in his evil or you are an object of his evil. It's one or the other. You are either going to pillage people with him or you are going to be pillaged. That's how Proverbs 1 describes man. We are by nature selfish. And you either aid our selfish motives or you are going to be a victim of my selfish motives. This has always been the case. This has been the case since the fall of man. The Bible is full of these fabricated distinctions between man. Esther, chapter 3, verse 6. Do you remember this story? Do you remember the story of the Jews almost being annihilated and saved by the grace of God? He says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai, a Jewish man, did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt. Do you remember this? The Jewish people living in Egypt by the hand of, uh, of Joseph and the mighty work of God. He says, Who did not know Joseph? And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal with them shrewdly, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Divide and conquer. Separate, make weaker, so I will gather my troops, I will gather my co-conspirators, and we will take advantage of you. Man divides for his own selfish reasons. The modern iteration, the modern idea that mankind should be divided into various races only took root in the past hundred or so years with Darwin's theory of the theory of evolution. It was drafted in the mid-19th century. Do you know what Darwin's full title of that book is? It's the theory of evolution, right? You know what the full title is? Let me tell you what the full title is. It'll tell you exactly what he was thinking. The full title is this, Darwin's Theories on the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. He was an evil man. He was a wicked man. He was a racist man. And it inherently affected his science. It's not science. It's prejudice. Thus created what we see today in our culture, the concept of multiple races. There is only one race. I say it again. One. Anything different is not biblical. It is worldly. You say, Tim, you can say it all day. I walk outside. There's multiple races. That's not the way we live in this world. Well, brother, sister, let me tell you this. The world also says there's 150,000 different genders out there. Are we going to bow to that too? There's two genders, and the world wants to create one every week. 
We live in a world that recognizes, separates, placates to, differentiates, and values people based upon their perceived view of their various genders. Will we give away to that? No. Will we give away to this idea and concept of race? This Darwinian evolutionary theory of race? No. Or do we recognize that the thought of the world lives that false reality? We will not. I understand, young man, that you feel that you are a homosexual. I understand that you are dealing gravely with that sin. But there is hope in Christ. There is an answer to that sin and repent of it and God will make you new. There is an answer to it. Brother, I see that you view yourself as only this culture, only as this person. As we send missionaries off to say this very thing, Hi, I'm from Jackson Bible Church in the Philippines to preach to you. You see yourself as Filipino. You see me as American. I'm coming to bring you the good news of Jesus Christ that says that we can be brothers and sisters and no distinction between us. That gospel is for America too. Darwin is the father of modern racism that we see today. The Bible condemns racism Deuteronomy 16, 19 says, you shall not pervert justice and you shall show no partiality. Our culture and our leaders, and Lord help us, even our churches have decided to tackle this issue in the form of social justice. But what's the problems with social justice? What is the problem with social justice? Well, what is the purpose of government, first off? Is the purpose of government to fix our spiritual issues? Is that the purpose of government? Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 4 makes it very clear what the purpose of government is. And the ruling bodies are designed and placed here by God for good and for the judgment of evil. It is also true that no government or ruling state has ever maintained a just and right position consistently. That goes for America too. Every government, even the ones of of Israel. Go back and read the Old Testament. Failure, failure, failure. They just they they heard from God. They saw God. They were given commands by God, and they still consistently failed to to promote justice. Though the U.S., though America may be founded on just words such as humans are endowed by their creator, it has forced slavery, it has diminished the pursuit of happiness, and it has slaughtered and continues to slaughter innocent babies. Every day. I know, I know, I know people are giving partial truths. I know. Yes, we were a, a country steeped in wickedness and slavery, and, but we, we abandoned it, we rid it. But brothers and sisters, to think that we are a righteous nation when there's blood being spilt every day by the thousands. You talk about innocence. They don't even make it into the world. So why then, why are evangelicals, why then are they pronouncing the path to social justice through these worldly governmental means? What are those means? What are they promoting? What are the founding principles and the movement of the social justice that you're being promoted on on Facebook, on Twitter? 
Well, the problem with them is that they're founded on unbiblical principles. And they're conceptually untrue. Let's talk about those things. I want you to understand them. It is the purpose of a good shepherd. It is the purpose of him when he takes his sheep to a pasture to graze, that he goes and he picks out the, the things that are poisonous and dangerous. He goes and he scopes the field. He says, let me go rid uh, the snakes, make sure there's no wolves, go pull up any poisonous trees, and make sure that it's safe for my sheep to graze. And I, I want to do that now. These are the things that are being promoted, and I want you to understand them, okay? Number one, what are these foundational principles that the social justice is being built upon? Number one, it is called critical theory or critical race theory. What is critical race theory? It is, a definition, is a theoretical framework to examine society and culture as they relate to categorizations of race, law, and power. Sociologists described this theory as critical insofar as it seeks to, and I want you to hear this, to liberate human beings from the circumstances that enslave them. Following up with that is intersectionality. Intersectionality is the study of the relationship between the many different ways that people are kept in a lower social position, controlled, and left out of important parts of society because of their differences. These two theories have been woven into an old church heresy. That old church heresy is called liberation theology. What is liberation theology? Liberation theology is a movement in Christian theology developed mainly by Latin American Roman Catholics. And it emphasizes liberation from social, political, and economic oppression as an anticipation of ultimate salvation. So I just gave you three pretty big terms, and I have some more here. But why are these three terms dangerous? Al Mohler gives a pretty good description on why these terms are dangerous to the church. Well, number one, uh, Protestant liberalism was the foundation and focused on the improvement on human society. These theories, that's what they focus on, the improvement of human society through human means. This altered the church's mission from conversion, salvation, evangelism, to social progress and political agendas. They deny the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they replaced it with a political and a social mission for the church. Think Mother Teresa, out there doing lots of good works, feeding the hungry, uh, taking in the poor, never once telling them that they were going to die and go to hell. What good would this church be if we did not care about the eternal souls, but only about the bread in people's cupboards? It's found its emergence here in our culture in the form of liberation theology. And they jettisoned the good news of Christ's death and his resurrection, and they replaced it with a promise of social and moral progress that would liberate human beings from a revolutionary platform, thus claiming their own liberation mechanisms. You all understand what I'm saying here? I know I just took you back to high school vocabulary. Nobody (laughs) cares. Do you understand what this means? 
Do you understand what this means? It fundamentally redefines human sin. Sin was no longer understood as an individual's transgression against God's law, but was viewed only through the lens of structures and systems. I haven't sinned. My systems and my upbringing and my culture and the way where I was born, it's, that, it's their fault, not my fault. Some other terms that are floating around. White fragility. White fragility. How do you deal with this? What does white fragility mean? It means discomfort and defensiveness on the part of a white person when confronted by information about racial inequality and injustice. This is racist, and this is an unbiblical concept. It's a Kafka trap. Y'all know what a Kafka trap is? Kafka trap. A Kafka trap is when someone denies, I'll I'll use it in terms of, of this right here. When someone denies being racist, and it is taken as evidence that that person is in fact racist, because someone who is racist would deny that they're a racist. Does that make sense? You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's what it means. It states that you're a racist because of your skin color. And if you disagree, it just proves you're a racist. The fact that Reformed evangelicals are buying into this is shameful. It's wicked. These concepts can never be substantiated from Scripture. If you can't prove it from the Word of God, you should never teach it. You should never be founded upon it. You should never bring it into the life of your sheepfold, ever. It cannot be substantiated from the Word of God. White privilege. There's another term you're hearing. White privilege. It's an inherent advantages possessed by a white person on the basis of their race and a society characterized by racial inequality and injustice. It's guilt placed upon someone for what their ancestors may or may not have done. The Bible absolutely condemns this. Ezekiel, chapter 18, verses 19 to 20, it says this, and I want you to listen carefully. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? Iniquity being sin. When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. Now verse 20 states very clearly that the guilt belongs to the individual. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. I want you to understand something, too. This idea of white privilege, it has just now been reduced here in the past few weeks to privilege. It goes beyond white now. This argument uh, has affected prominent members of society who disagree with these theories or have been dismissed. They have been now dismissed as privileged. Terry Crews, a prominent athlete and actor, uh, he disagreed with some of the statutes of, of this movement and of these terms. And they said, oh, well, they say things like, well, he's not even black. So you are immediately dismissed. Well, he's too privileged. He lives too well. He has too much money. He's too successful. We can't talk to him anymore. 
Should you really ask forgiveness for God's kindness to you? When I tell my sons when we pray at night to be thankful that God has given them a Christian home and that they have a rich now heritage of the word of God in their life, should they be ashamed of that? What these people call privilege of any kind, the Bible calls it ungratefulness, and it's a sin. So what do these principles, these social justice principles that have infiltrated and divided the true church of God, what do they state? What is their philosophies? Well, number one, it removes personal responsibility for sins. Our problem, humanity's problem is systematic because it's humanity's rebelling against its creator. There's your systematic problem. You're a human and you're a sinner. All of us. That which oppresses you, that which oppresses you is equally oppressive to others when you are holding it in your own blood-stained hands if it were not for Christ. Number two, it makes external circumstances the primary responsible party for people's actions and sins. No one gets a pass because they were victims. We all, all have ancestors who were victim. We all have ancestors who were oppressive. That's not a justification for maintaining our sins. It's not a justification for coming up with a new method for the gospel. Number three, it effectively takes away our gospel message. Do you hear that? What do we have to give the world if we stand on these social justice platforms? Nothing. How can I call people to repentance? How can I say, hey, this is going to be difficult. You need to examine yourself. You need to to feel the weight of your own sin. But I promise you, as soon as you repent of it, as soon as you begin to look to Christ and as you see your sinfulness and the beauty of God, and that he in his perfection died on that cross to pay for your very sins. This is the great reward. This is the great trophy of life, and it's called grace. How do I give that to him if I say, ah, it's not your fault? Where's the gospel? We're going to throw away the gospel? We're going to throw away the gospel for some marches? I got nothing without the gospel. Nothing. There's nothing left. Daryl B. Harrison, he said it, I thought beautifully, he says, we are called to indict sinners and invite them to repentance and faith. Invite them. Please come, note my good God. Not arm them with excuses that fail to convince the holy judge. John MacArthur said, this is the language of the law, not the gospel. And worse, it mirrors the jargon of worldly politics, not the message of the cross. It is a startling irony that believers from different ethnic groups, now one in Christ, have chosen to divide over ethnicity. They have a true spiritual unity in Christ, which they seem to disdain in favor of fleshly factions. Their message has no hope. It has no grace, no kindness, love, or peace. 
always running from the unseen mystery of some sin that somebody has told you you have and you've never seen before. <laughs> I don't know. And it has affected the church. It has affected, infected good, godly preachers, brothers. I'm not going to tell you their names because I'm not here to slam other pastors. But I want you to hear some of the things that have been said. And quote, given the depth of, of theological miseducation when it comes to race in white churches, a brief sermon series on race before you get back to your regularly scheduled program isn't going to cut it. We need to consistently address racial justice for months and years at a time. Another dear brother said this, what's needed is number one, solidarity with us as black people. Number two, you're emphasizing solidarity with black people to such an extent that we are in turn free to accept and emphasize solidarity in Christ. Until that happens, we will have to choose black solidarity before Christian solidarity to live. Oh, Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, help him if he hasn't felt the love from his other brothers around him. Lord, help us. Lord, what got him to that point? And Lord, Lord, what about the people around him? His brothers and sisters, Lord, did they fail him? I don't know. Do you see how the word of God is displaced? These are men who are foundational to what we have now as sola scriptura, the revival of sola scriptura in this country. These men were a part of that. And now they're saying this. Something creeped in years ago. Do you see how the word of God is displaced? Do you see how unity is displaced? Do you see how an ounce of leaven destroys you? Exegesis, exposition of the text is no longer enough. It's not enough. Don't just give me the word of God. We need something more. It's pragmatism. It's not the gospel. The problem with social justice gospel preaching is the idea that the true gospel is not sufficient that we must evangelize plus something. If we did all the additionals, if we did all the plus somethings without true conversion, without the gospel, guess what? It would all fall apart anyway. There's a affirmation that was created and signed by pastors in light of the social justice movement, uh, the, probably the most notable signer of that document was uh, John MacArthur, and uh, I want to read it to you because I agree with it, and I think it clarifies this whole situation. He says, number one, he says, we affirm that the Bible is God's word breathed out by him. It is inerrant, infallible, and the final authority for determining what is true and what we must believe and what is right and how we must live. All truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by God's final word, which is Scripture alone. We deny that Christian belief 
character, or conduct can be dictated by any other authority. And we deny that the postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory are consistent with biblical teaching. We further deny that competency to teach on any biblical issue comes from any qualification for spiritual people other than clear understanding and simple communication of what is revealed in Scripture. Brothers, I will say it again, sisters, it is a war. And it has already divided the army and has taken in casualties, many of them. Put on your armor. Now, this is not the end of this message. I would not leave you in such despair and such foreboding darkness. There is a lot more to this, and we'll discuss it next week. I want you to be praying. I want you to be praying for me. As I preach it again, I want you to be praying for this church. I want you to be praying for your own life. And please, please uh, hold off any Facebook posts about it until I finish, um, <laughs> until you get the whole picture. Because you may feel one way now and say feel completely validated and run off into the battlefield when maybe you're not fully covered as you should be. There is a gospel to consider, a gospel answer to consider, pitfalls to watch out for, and actions that must be taken. And the people of God must be prepared to do those very things. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. And Lord, may your children not forget that hope, not forget our Lord, not forget our God and our King. Though the world around us may crumble, though everyone around us may gather together for Armageddon, whatever may happen, Lord, you are still God. And you still reign, and Lord, you love your children. You love your people. And Lord, you will not be denied your purposes. Who can stand against you? Thank you, Lord, that you are powerful, all-powerful, mighty, majestic. And that, Lord, you are our Father. We rest in you, Lord. I pray you give us wisdom as we go throughout the week, Lord. May we be contemplative. May we quietly think on who you are and what your word says. And Lord, may you prepare us for whatever lies ahead. Lord, may we glorify your name in this church and in our lives. In your sweet name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.